Welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, brought to you by IndemniMed, the new practitioner and practice insurance from the awesome people at Money and Medicine. In this week's Coffee with Consultants feature, I interview Dr. Nick Britz, representing Urology. Dr. Britz is originally from KwaZulu-Natal and completed his undergraduate degree at UCT in 2011. After internship in Peter Maritzburg, he moved to Johannesburg and worked as a medical officer at Charlotte McDeke and Chris Honey Barragwanath Academic Hospitals. He subsequently specialized in urology at WITS and now works in private practice. Dr. Britz is an honorary consultant at the University of the Witwatersrand and is actively involved in undergraduate and postgraduate teaching and training in the field of urology. When he's not practicing his craft, Dr. Britz enjoys spending time outdoors hiking, fishing, playing sports, and spending time with his family and children. Before we dive in, I'd like to take a moment to thank and tell you about our sponsors on this week's episode. V Professional Services is a medical practice administrator, medical bureau, and a professional medical accountant. If you're a new healthcare practitioner, They'll help you from the beginning to the end, from registration to the practice management and training. And if you're a healthcare professional with another medical billing company, they'll assist you in moving over all your information with no financial loss or worries. V Professional Services assist a variety of healthcare practitioners with agents across South Africa. Their recovery rate on medical claims is between 95 and 100%. The outcome is that practitioners maintain control of their practices and are able to focus on treating patients, while V Professional Services provide them with healthcare expertise along with all the professional tools they need to succeed. You can find out more about V Professional Services by visiting their website at www.vprofservices.com and checking out their social media on Instagram with the username at vprofservices. Thank you to V Professional Services for their support of the podcast. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, Dr. Nick Britz. It's fantastic to have you and thank you very much for making yourself available for this podcast. Thanks very much. Uh, it's an honor to be with you today. Thank you. So right off the bat, the question that we like to ask all of our consultants on the podcast is about your junior doctor years and where you did your training. So where did you go to medical school and tell us about internship and commsurf? Sure. So I um, grew up in KZN and then ended up going down to UCT for my undergrad um, which as a student is a an amazing city to to study in and be a young sort of adult in um, I met my now wife while uh, studying at GCT and after the six years there I wanted to go back to my homeland so I went to Peter Maritzburg for internship and I can really recommend Peter Maritzburg as a sort of hospital complex for internship I think there's a lot of advantages about uh, doing your junior doctor years there. You get to rotate through three different hospitals, which uh, see a variety of pathology and a different sort of level of care. And it's also has a great social scene and a lot to do in terms of being near the beach, uh, near the, the Berg. Um, yeah, so really a great place. And um, during internship, uh, Two of the blocks that I really liked was anesthetics and surgery. And at that time, the Peter Maritzburg Department of Anesthetics was really strong, and I decided that it was kind of between those two. 
And then my wife and I, uh, we were doing long distance during that time and we decided we wanted to be in the same city. So then we both applied for Joburg, me for ComServe and her for internship. And I was fortunate that I got uh, Joby Jen for my ComServe year. And then I got even luckier in that I got six months of anesthetics. Um, and I got to do my diploma in anesthetics, which was um, a sort of eye-opener into what anesthetics really is about because in med school and in, even in internship, when you're working, it's, it's not a, a true reflection of what the job is like. And um, working, I know it's, it's, it's a short period of time, but six months gives you a much more accurate reflection of what the job is like day to day. And I found I was way more interested in what was happening on the other side of the curtain. Um, and I got to do the next six months in surgery. And actually, um, I just got rotated into urology. Um, it wasn't a request. Uh, I, I requested surgery. I got three months of urology and three months of trauma. I don't think any kid grows up saying I want to be a urologist, <laughs> right? It's, uh, <clears throat> it's, not, it's not the glamorous rock and roll discipline of plastic surgery or cardiothoracics or neurosurgery. It's, it hardly features on Grey's Anatomy. I mean, it's, 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 it's not, it doesn't have that, that allure. But yeah, I kind of got stuck into urology and I really enjoyed it. Um, and we'll get into a little bit of why I enjoy it and, and things. Um, yeah, so then after ComServe, I, I took a six-month break from sort of the, the Joburg circuit. I did some locuming and private casualties and things. Um, and I Was traveled. that very intentional, like you wanted that six months specifically for a reason? Well, what I knew was that once I started specializing, that there was then another long you know, probably eight years or so ahead of me, exactly, yeah. where you kind of can't take another break because you kind of committed to the, the, the path. And um, so I knew that that was kind of my gap to take take a break. <clears throat> so I did a bit of traveling uh, for three months, worked in private uh, casualties for, for a few months, and then applied uh, for a medical officer post in urology. Mm. And... Uh, I did most of my emo time and a lot of my reg time at Barra, and I have a really soft spot for Barra. Um, urology, like most of the smaller surgical subspecs, things like ENT, optum, urology, plastics maybe, has a very long, what well, takes a long time to get a reg post. Yeah. So oh, one of the things that about, just about internship and, and comm service, to ultimately get that reg post and start your formal sort of training, for most of these surgical suspects, you need intermediates. Yes. And now to get intermediates, you need ICU time, surgical rotations, basic surgical skills, ATLS, ACLS, uh, uh, yeah, and, and then time in your own discipline. So you really kind of have to be ticking off a lot of those courses and boxes along the way. You can't sort of decide that you want to get a reg post and think it's going to happen in six months. It takes years of sort of developing your skills and getting your CV kind of ready yeah. so that when you get to the time of an interview you, it's, it's all there already and so I think internship you should try and get some of those if you're looking at a surgical sort of discipline try and get your ATLS basic surgical skills ACLS done and it is getting more and more competitive to get a reg post um, I think I did just over two and a half years of MO time wow uh, it, it seems to be getting longer um, I think you're probably looking at about three years of MO time before you get a reg post. And then when you, once you get a reg post, 
you're looking at another sort of four to five years. And, and what's the bottleneck that's causing that? Is it just a limitation on the number of posts available? Or is it that there's people that are staying in the system longer? What's, what is that's causing that bottleneck? Yeah, so um, there's, the, urology is a very small field. We don't have interns uh, that rotate through the, the uh, department in any of the hospitals, or at least in Karting. Um, and so it's, it's run by medical officers and registrars, and um, there's kind of a handful at most at any sort of hospital. Um, so there's not a lot of posts, and I think that the, surg- the smallest surgical suspects do have appeal, and we'll also get into sort of the advantages of urology. Um, yeah. But from the outside, I think a lot of people enjoy the fact that it is a surgical discipline, but we are predominantly, we do planned surgeries or elective surgeries. We, we're not your sort of typical trauma, middle of the night um, kind of um, cases. That being said, it's, it's not a chilled discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, we do call from home, which is probably a huge plus for a lot of people when they're trying to decide uh, what to do. But when you choosing your discipline, you shouldn't really be thinking of those four years of registrar time. Kind of should be thinking, you know, 10 years down the line, what is your life going to be like? Um, or how do you want your life to look? Yeah. Um, so, so the one thing I'd say is there's not a lot of posts. The second thing I'd say about the bottleneck is that it goes in waves. And sometimes there'll be one post and there'll be, you know, 20 applicants. The next time there'll be two posts and only five people apply. And it kind of just depends on timing like a lot of things in life you can get lucky or unlucky yeah so tell us now all about urology this is your opportunity (laughs) to sell the discipline you did say that it's a smaller surgical um subspec but what is it about urology that should grab people's attention that's uniquely appealing about urology so if you've got any kind of good plus selling points you know to aspiring yeah. urologists yeah there are a few things that I, that I really like about urology I think one of the things that is probably got nothing to, maybe it's got something to do with urology but urologists generally are, are nice calmer people than your big egos in a lot of the other surgical disciplines so it's a much nicer environment to work in um, you are still in a surgical discipline but you're not you don't feel like the egos are just clashing the whole time. Um, and that for me was uh, huge, is that it's a nice environment to work in. In terms of the actual um, speciality, I know it seems like urology is very narrow. I mean, it's pretty much just the urinary system, the male reproductive system, but there's really a huge variety of stuff that we, we can do. And the majority of urologists in South Africa are generalists, right? They're not, there's no sort of formal fellowship training in South Africa or if it is, it's, it's a small one in Cape Town. And is that different to around the world? Like in, in the yes. world, is there one guy who's like, I just focus on the epididymis, and one guy is like, <laughs> I, just, I just focus on the urethra. Yes, but um, yeah, so, so in the States and uh, the UK, um, very much sort of fellowship driven and uh, sub, sort of sub-specializing, and most people there would, would look at doing some kind of sort of Fellowship. So there, you, you know, you can choose oncology, uh, urogyne, pediatrics. Um, <coughs> there's neurourology for infer- male infertility. So there's a whole bunch of different sort of options or andrology. So 
but in but in South Africa, most urologists are generalists. Yeah. Um, and I think it comes down to the fact that there's just so much need, and there's no no person who's really saying like, I just want that niche mm. suspect slice of urology, right? Yeah, I mean they are, but they they few and far between. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, there's quite a, a variety of things we do. We deal with males, we deal with females, and um, pediatrics, geriatrics. Uh, we have small, quick cases that take sort of ten minutes. We have sort of seven, eight hour major oncology wow. cases. So sure. there's a lot of variety. The other thing is that we are a surgical discipline, but there's also a lot of medicine, uh, physiology and medicine in urology. It's not only cutting and operating. So um, there are a lot of conditions that we manage medically. There's a lot of oncology, so a lot of involvement with um, oncologists, radiologists, um, other departments, um, nephrology as well. And so yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a broad scope of work. Mm. Then the next thing that I think is, is quite cool is there's a lot of gadgets in urology. So um, robotic surgery, uh, urology is kind of at the forefront of, of robotic surgery, right? The robotic prostatectomy, depending on which part of the world you're from, is, is, is a huge um, change in the sort of face of, of, of uh, radical prostate surgery. And that makes sense because, you know, most of what you're working with is fairly close to the surface, if not on the surface. Mm. So there's no kind of difficulties in terms of access. Um, and because it is really, really fine structures that you're working with as well, I mean, you don't want to go hacking a little bit too deep. <laughs> so, so that ma- makes real, real sense. And for those who want to be on the cutting edge, that might mm. be something that really draws them into urology is that it does seem to be on the cutting edge of yeah. surgical techniques. And we have lots of cool little gadgets and... Um, I mean, I think every field has has you know advances in their in their discipline, and um, but yeah, we deal with a lot of lasers and baskets and yeah, cool little things that we get to play with. So um, that is cool. And then the last thing I'd say that is nice about urology is, as I, as I mentioned, the um, the majority of our work is planned. If we can avoid it, uh, we're not really out there at three o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning doing uh, you know. A polytrauma on a drunk guy who got hit by a bus or something. So we get to kind of control our after hours a lot more than the other sort of surgical disciplines like orthopedics, trauma, general surgery, yeah. things like that. Yeah. And what's your work spent out like? So you obviously got consults that you're doing, you've got theater time. I assume you've got some kind of clinic or outpatient center that you, mm-hmm. you or you've seen patients in that setting as well as consulting in rooms that new patients presenting with their referrals from, That's especially right. being in private. Um, and then, so you, so talk us through what a typical day or a typical week, week would be like. like yeah. And then also what the comparison would be like being uh, working in private versus working in public. Do you sure. see the same kind of stuff because people might present much later in, in public or uh, is it very even? Yeah. So um, just the first question about my, what my sort of typical work week looks like. Um, as I mentioned, there's a lot of lot of medicine in, in urology. So um, our consulting and our, our um, sort of outpatient appointments is a huge part of our work. Mm. Not only that, but a lot of our surgery bookings come from your you know outpatient appointments, where you sort of assess a patient, a patient, make a diagnosis, and if surgery is the correct sort of option, then you sort of counsel them and book them for surgery. So yeah, the the, the outpatient appointments are a huge huge part of our, our week. And then generally in private, you, you would have probably one list a week. In government, it would be more because there's obviously more need and more demand. And then 
otherwise managing in patients, uh, just like any kind of other surgical thing, you'll have critically ill patients. So uh, patients are admitted um, in high care or ICU settings, and then your sort of planned patients that are in the ward waiting for, for elective surgery. Then in terms of uh, the difference between public and private, so one of the things that really kind of got to me about working in government was I think I developed a bit of sort of compassion fatigue and a bit of burnout, but not burnout in terms of working too hard, but burnout in terms of having your, your hands tied and not being able to provide the service that, that patients needed. We have massive waiting lists in urology. Um, if you're a six-year-old guy with BPH and you develop urinary retention and need a catheter and medical therapy fails and you need some kind of surgical intervention, you can easily wait sort of three to five years for an operation sure. to get you off a catheter. Whereas in private, you're getting that within a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. And so that inability to offer the service that patients needed really I found quite emotionally draining. Sure. And you have patients that really are at their sort of uh, wit's end and are really struggling and uh, you can't offer them any sort of help. And no matter what uh, you do in terms of trying to increase theater lists and staff components and things like that, um, the patient load is just overwhelming. And for me, that was probably the toughest, toughest part about government. Um, and it's been a huge breath of fresh air being able to see a patient, make a diagnosis and offer them sort of a, a management plan immediately. Yeah. Um, and I guess that comes in that it would bring in the whole NHI debate is that there has to become some kind of middle ground, right? Um, you can't have people kind of picking and choosing when they want an operation with what doctor. And on the other hand, you can't have people waiting five years for a surgery. So. Yeah. I kind of see the, the theory behind NHI, and I guess that's a debate for another day. <laughs> very, very cool. So I'm not going to draw, draw you too much on NHI going forward, but you already hit on one of the potential negatives, you know, is not being able to do something that you want to do for a patient. I think one of the other negatives when it comes to urology, I can imagine, is that you have to be the brunt of a lot of penis jokes. Um, <laughs> we do, we do. And um, maybe, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of myths about urologists and what yeah. we actually do and things yeah. like that. Um, Please dispel them. <laughs> I don't know if I can. I think a lot of them are true. Um, <laughs> no, so, so a lot of people think that urologists only see men. Yeah. That's, that's one of the sort of common ones is that... Um, and gynees only see females, but there's a bit of overlap, and especially you, you're married to a gynecologist. That's so right. That's true of you. We, we do see we do see females. Um, probably about twenty percent of our work is is, is females. Um, I mean, anybody that uh, anybody that has kidneys, anybody that makes urine, uh, <laughs> can potentially be one of our uh, patients. Um, so that's the one thing we definitely see females. Um, the other thing that people love joking about is that we we all we just stick our, our finger in people's bums all, the, all day but it's also not completely true and shame some patients come in really stressed about that uh, prostate exam and uh, to be honest it's, it's, it's not, not as big of a deal as yeah. people uh, think do you have any uh, tips or maybe any, <laughs> anything you say uh, to kind of alleviate the tension before you put your finger in it <laughs> um Generally, people have done all the mental preparation by the time they come to see a urologist. Sure. I think they, they kind of know what they're in for. And I think they, they often will say, is this the time, is this the time that you're going to do that exam? <laughs> like, you know? So they know what they're in for and uh, they've prepared themselves. But 
and otherwise it's just a sort of calm reassuring word and being they, professional right I mean, oh, and they, they're not like going to the, let the glove <laughs> go with a big snap and make it's, it all dramatic there are lots of memes and uh, jokes about that I'm you know, not even going to mention them. But yeah, you just kind of be calm and reassure yeah. them and it's really not as big of a deal as, as people think. 100%. Um, but yeah, um, one of my bosses always used to say, um, urologists are generally kind of calm and nice people and we'd rather be uh, pissed on than pissed off. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Cool. And I think the important thing there is that, you know, for students who are just starting out with their clinical years and doing these things, the first couple of times you do it, it's very nerve-wracking for you as the as yeah. a clinician doing a DRE or doing an uh, intimate exam or doing a sure. urethral cath- catheter. Um, but with time and with continued training and development, it just becomes second nature, right? So I'm sure you don't even think about it. For sure. And... Um I think like a lot of things in medicine, like the first few times you do something, you actually have no idea what you're doing. You know, have no idea what you're feeling, and uh, someone will say, you know, say, go examine this patient and tell me what you find, and then you often have no, you don't know what to even say. And I think that's normal for any part of training, and it's all a learning process. And uh, by the time you've done five or ten or fifty or a hundred it kind of just becomes second nature and you only know what's abnormal from finding out what's normal. So you have to do it, you have to examine patients and I think this should hold true for all specialities but uh, let me just say for urology is that it's not really rocket science. I mean, we're basically plumbers, right? So <laughs> if it's if the urine's not flowing, if the waterworks are not flowing, we help to get it flowing. Um, if they're flowing, if it's flowing too much and, and yeah. waterworks are leaking, we try and block it up a little bit yeah. and I mean, that's a very simplistic way, but it, it, it is kind of like that. And my point is that you kind of have to go back to basics, right? So a solid sort of history and examination should a lot of the time get you to a diagnosis and you just use your sort of special investigations to either confirm it or exclude like important differentials. So, yeah, you just got to go to the basics and, and... Let's take a quick break from this week's interview to tell you a little bit more about one of our sponsors on this week's episode, and that's V Professional Services. As we said earlier, they're a medical practice administration and medical billing service provider with national distribution and reach. They've been in the profession for over 13 years and have a recovery rate on medical claims of more than 95%. Their attention is focused on saving you as the clinician time and money. V Professional Services protects the goodwill of your practice and cherishes the relationships you have with your patients, positively influencing financial performance and turning around obstacles that prevent your practice from achieving its goals. Having worked with some of the best partners in the world of healthcare, V Professional Services has very extensive insights and a broad understanding of the entire healthcare market. As a company, they have a genuine understanding of what is required to run a successful medical practice. This knowledge and expertise, along with their high service delivery standards, allow V Professional Services to provide the best solutions and comprehensive support to healthcare providers across South Africa. They create a tailor-made package for your practice needs and only bill on what they recover. Their service also includes all of the setup costs for the hardware and software for the practice to manage the online billing system with the online practice management. They are one of the only service providers in the country registered for debit order management. 
It means that they can monitor debtors accurately and effectively by ensuring that they receive all funds, be it private patients or short payments by medical scheme companies, in a fraction of the time normally spent collecting these amounts. This also ensures a highly efficient collection rate without the need for any costly legal action taken or patient liable amounts being written off. They supply you with the patient's information form accompanied by a debit order mandate and any amounts due are collected in a simple and cost-effective manner without the patient being phoned or harassed. This keeps your practice goodwill intact and has an explosive effect on your cash flow as uncollectible amounts practically fall to zero. The professional services packages also include the following services. Submitting all claims electronically to the various medical aid companies with costs included, following up on these claims and administrating, as well as patient or debtor management, thus minimizing admin costs for your practice or clinic. Efficient and professional administration and collection of medical aid claims and private patient fees, detailed reports on all patient visits, payments outstanding and received, backup of medical data daily, IT support, accounting services, including payroll management with PAYE and UIF at a discounted rate, tax advisory services at a discounted rate, and legal assistance also at a discounted rate. If you're ready to take your practice management to a whole new level and want to get in touch with V Professional Services, you can book an appointment on their website or reach them by sending an email to marketing at vprof.co.za. You can also phone 012-348-3567. I think this is also an opportunity to reinforce something that's so important for all medical students and junior doctors to remember is the incredible privilege that we have as clinicians to enter patients' intimate personal space and do these examinations and do these procedures that, I mean, if you were just somebody on the streets touching people the way we do as, as doctors, you'd get arrested for assault. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So and just because so we do it all the time doesn't yeah. mean the patients do it all the time, right? 100%. It's probably the first time. A lot of people maybe it's the first time that they've kind of got undressed or um, in front of a stranger, you know. And and yeah, maybe it's the fifteenth patient that we've done that examination on that day, but it's the first time that they've done that in years. And so it is a very intimate, scary moment for them. And yeah, you have to be professional and calm and. Uh, and, and, and if you're the student who's with the dignity that it needs, yeah. correct. And if you're the student who's kind of battling with the idea, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to see these people naked, you know, just to be cognizant of the fact that like these people are trusting you and they're not judging you, and you know that this is a sacred calling, really, mm. to be able to help patients in this way. So, moving forward with the conversation about urology, yes, is, do you have any fun stories you can share without obviously? Uh, you know, breaking patient confidentiality or any identifiers, but maybe telling us about some of the adventures in urology or some of the just pure crazy things that urologists deal with on a day-to-day. No, sure. I think, I mean, just the nature of our work means that we're going to be dealing with things in very sensitive and intimate parts of the body. And a lot of people are very obsessed with their, their sort of private parts, <laughs> especially men for some reason. I think... Uh, very obsessive about how <laughs> things look and how the size of things and whatever it is but I mean just a couple of things that people have done and do do that we the audience get is it, turning the volume yeah, up we, get you, involved you in our attention uh, I mean you sometimes see these uh, things on, on Instagram or, or, or of trying to guess you know what objects people have put up different sort of orifices right and yeah. I mean with urology it's um, 
the, the urethral meatus is not that big, but you'd be amazed at what people can, can put up there. <laughs> and, and getting it in is one thing, but getting it out is a whole different uh, challenge. Yeah. Um, and it, it does tend to, to sort of happen to people with some uh, degree of sort of psychiatric condition. And that also makes it a challenge because they end up being repeat offenders and sure. uh, you end up kind of getting to know their face and you're like, oh no, what have, what have, you, what have you put up there now? Um, that's the one thing. And then the other thing I'd, I'd say that is quite a, um, when the pressure's on is guys sometimes um, will put sort of rings or, or, or beads under the skin. Or, yeah, but, but, but I'm sort of specifically talking about like rings on, on the penis to try and maintain an erection, right? Oh, no. um, and I think some of the sort of scariest ones is uh, guys will put on some kind of stainless steel ring of some sort and then it gets stuck and not right? be able to get it off and you can't oh. get it off and that can uh, really become quite a challenge we end up um, just grinding it off or? having to use a dremel uh, grinder to try to get it off and um, I mean it, it happens in other disciplines right like uh, trauma or whatever you got sure. a ring stuck on the finger but sure. there's definitely a little bit of added pressure when it's on the penis and uh, half of casualties now watching you because you got <laughs> you got like a, <laughs> a, a a grinder and, and some uh, water dripping on it to keep the temperature down and uh, you've got and a little bit of a um, tongue depressor underneath to try and protect the skin <laughs> and it's all kind of um, yeah, high pressure, high intensity. And is that just done in the conscious sedation in <laughs> casualty or is, do you take them to theatre to spare them the embarrassment? Um, no, it's often done just in casualty. Wow, yeah, sure. Yeah. Alrighty, so... <laughs> So some of the memes are true. No, they're very true. <laughs> Unfortunately, where there's, uh, where there's smoke, there's fire. <laughs> Alrighty, so uh, I like that you were very, very humble and guarded, I think for the sake of your patients. <laughs> a little bit too humble there. Um, so urology as a fast-moving discipline in terms of robotic surgery mm. and stuff, is the landscape of urology changing? Will urology be different in five to 10 years time when our audience is specializing? Or is it still kind of the same now? The same as now? Yeah, um, I think there's a couple of things that probably need to change and then there's a pro probably a few things that will change. And um, I think of some changes, um, one of the things that comes to the top of mind is sort of females in urology. So that's maybe another myth um, that you could be you know, explored is, are there any female urologists? And there are, but they're, they're not a lot. Um, I think that is changing. Uh, there are more coming through the, the sort of registrar program and stuff, but they, it's definitely a slow sort of process or, or transition. And I think it will get better, but um, I think female urology and female urologists, there's a huge demand. And I think um, for any sort of female listeners out there who like the idea of a surgical discipline, with sort of more planned surgeries, things like that, it's um, it is a good, good option and probably a better lifestyle than some other surgical disciplines. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of um, sort of advances in urology and things like that, like I mentioned, the overseas it's, it's very much specialised into different um, subspects of urology, and I know people have different opinions about whether we should move in that direction as, uh, uh, you know, urology association or society in, in South Africa and. And my sort of opinion is that you need urology, uh, general urologists. You need people that can do everything because um, 
we still are a small number of specialists. So you need to be able to kind of provide general services to a large number of people. But at the same time, we do need fellowship training in South Africa. At the moment, if you want to do any kind of fellowship training, you're going overseas. Sure. And obviously, there's a risk that you never come back. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously a huge problem for um, us as a country, it just us as a, a, a discipline, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, and we just need the, we need to retain skills, but we also need to develop skills and grow skills. And unfortunately, the only way to do that now is by going overseas. Mm. Um, I mean, there's lapar- laparoscopic courses in France. There's um, excellent congresses that people go and attend and come back. But um, I do think we need some kind of sort of fellowship training in South Africa, or at least some kind of junior consulting consultant position where you can choose a field and spend two years just doing that and becoming an expert in that so that we can uh, you know, hone our skills a little bit more rather than just being a general urologist. Yeah. Isn't it so interesting that in many disciplines, like especially trauma surgery, even pediatric surgery, a lot of the registrars and, and sometimes consultants from Europe are coming to South Africa mm. to get more exposure, to get some training here. Because, for example, if you're a trauma surgeon working in Scandinavia, you might see one sharp penetrating yeah. chest wound. No, our numbers uh, yeah. now are, are just crazy. Right, you just yeah. do one weekend in Hellbrow and you suddenly put in six ICDs. <laughs> so, so it seems like in urology it's almost the reverse. And that if you want to advance your skills and you want to get more exposure, you need to go the other direction. You need to yeah. go towards Europe. You need to go to those big urology centers overseas to get that fellowship training. So urology is, in a sense, kind of unique compared to some of the other specialties within South Africa. Mm. How do we rank compared to the world in terms of our skills, in terms of our training? Are urologists in South Africa on a par, or would you say that we've got a ways to go? It's a difficult one, but... um. I would say that our, our um, you know, let me start from sort of undergrad level. So sure. I mean, you get two you get two weeks as it's an not undergrad, enough. which not is enough. not enough exactly. Yeah. Then you do internship where you most likely are not going to get any further exposure mm-hmm. to urology, right? Mm-hmm. Then you decide you're going to be a urologist, and you um, you basically start your urology uh, exposure if you're lucky in concert. <laughs> if you're lucky in concert, but. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you, you train. And then, in terms of your postgrad training, I would say we're behind uh, okay. globally. Don't worry, none of the professors <laughs> are going to be enraged when they hear this. Um, but I mean, we 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 do live in a um, in a resource limited environment with a massive uh, demand for basic urology, and that is why I think uh, there's that debate about should we just have general urologists versus that subspect because. Um, there's there's so much need just for basic sort of urological urological care that to try and justify doing a eight hour operation on one patient where you could do ten you know forty five minute operations sure. in the same amount of time sure. which one brings the best good to the most people you know the most good to the most people um, but I would say in terms of you know trying to keep up with you know, the advances around the world, we're probably a little bit behind. And then that's why there's so much uh, focus on further training after your postgrad degree. And I mean, everyone knows this, but I mean, medicine's a lifelong learning, right? You think that you're going to spend four years, five years as a reg and know everything about urology, there's no chance. Mm -hmm. You have to keep learning and training and developing new skills and uh, uh, going to 
courses and things for the rest of your life. Um, so I don't think it's wrong what we do, but um, you have to just understand that you're not going to know everything and be able to do everything when you finish your reg time. You have to be aware that you're going to continue that learning for years and years and years. And hopefully, if you do get training overseas, bring it back to bring the country. Bring it back, exactly. Be a South African, not a South <laughs> Afrikaans. <clears throat> if I was to ask you about the other side of the coin now, the patient's understanding and the patient's knowledge about urology, mm. do you encounter interesting religious or cultural beliefs um, in our patient population, or are they kind of aware of what urology is all about? To be honest, I think, I think people don't really know what urology is about. I think a lot of doctors don't even know what urology is about. But sure. um, I think uh, if you sort of, um, you bring out the sort of cultural side, I think um, a lot of people sort of associate urology with a lot of sexual health and male like sexual dysfunction and things like that. And um, I think a lot of people or a lot of male patients uh, expect some kind of miracle cure for whatever sexual dysfunction they might be experiencing. And, and of course, not, there's many people with ads on street it. lamps and walls and bus stops that will offer that to them. Those are just urologists that never got like a reg place. They now <laughs> just put a penis enlargement and uh, lost lover signs. Exactly. So, so there are all those people that are promising the world for 50 bucks or 100 bucks. And then now you are the learned professional. And for your 500 and whatever consults saying, well, <laughs> well, sir, there's no magic bullet. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think a lot of people find that quite frustrating and they um, are not very accepting of the fact that um, your sexual sort of function is not going to be the same when you're 20 as it is when you're 60. And sure. uh, that I think is, a, is often difficult to sort of, you know, convince people or explain to people. And what else can I say about sort of the patient experience? Um, Look, I think in government, the, the, waiting, the waiting time for, for definitive surgery is, is really a killer. And uh, mm. patients are on catheters for a long, long time. And it has a huge socioeconomic yes. impact. Yeah. And I mean, if I think about, I've spoken a bit about BPH, but if you think about sort of urethral strictures, which is a huge problem in, in our um, society, mm. which have, has a high burden of sort of trauma and STDs, you have these young sort of 30 year old men who are meant to be in the prime of their lives looking for either building their careers looking for work or building a family and they're sort of stuck on a super pubic catheter which is either preventing them from starting a family or preventing them from looking for work it's a huge problem and you sort of say to them yeah look i'm sorry but your urethral price is booked for 2025 sure and they kind of get really angry at you and it's completely understandable yeah um so that's also another thing where we struggle to sort of have to face patients and say, look, I'm sorry, there's a really long waiting list. Um, I'd like to take a brief break from our Coffee with Consultants feature to acknowledge and tell you about one of our sponsors on this week's episode. And that is none other than Seventh Star Tuition. As you may recall, in episode 33 of this podcast, we highlighted the GEMP medical program at WITS and how to prepare for the WAPT exam, giving those who are not medical students the opportunity to enter medical school as a four-year postgraduate degree. Being a GEMP graduate myself, I know both the struggle to prepare and get in and the tremendous amount of work and support needed to balance studies with the rest of your life. So I'm delighted that 7th Star has partnered with us to promote their educational courses and services to students. Seventh Star is a company that has been at the forefront of student success for the last decade. If you are passionate about the sciences and nurturing ambitions for a rewarding medical career, you need to check them out. 
Seventh Star has made a name for itself by providing an array of courses meticulously designed to meet the needs of aspiring students across South Africa. And for the past 10 years, the folks at Seventh Star have been providing a pretty unique set of services to facilitate the achievement of your loftiest possible academic achievement goals. They've earned an enviable reputation through their three-tiered approach to supporting students. The first tier is their Extra Lessons program, which helps grade 10 to 12 learners to improve and ultimately excel in maths, physical sciences, and life sciences. Of course, a solid foundation in these subjects is vital for anyone with eyes set on a career in medicine. Moving to the second tier, Seventh Star's assessment prep offering focuses on preparing students for critical examinations, such as the National Benchmark Tests or NBTs, mid-year, prelim, and final exams. As many of you would know, Acing these examinations opens up a world of possibilities for future study, and this is precisely where Seventh Star comes into the picture. The third and arguably the most transformational facet of Seventh Star's approach is their UniHelp offering. This is where they help students take the big leap into various university programs. And what stands out about Seven Star's approach is how each of these services are interconnected, forming a cohesive journey for the students. At Seventh Star, the focus is not just on passing exams or acing courses. The real mission is to guide each student on a journey, a journey towards fulfilling their potential and making their dreams a reality. They provide a helping hand to those with aspirations for a career in medicine, ensuring they have the knowledge, the skills, and the confidence they need to succeed. Seventh Star encourages students to join as early in their academic career as possible, while simultaneously advocating that it is never too late to start and always too early to quit. In fact, they've helped more than 350 students to get into medicine over the last 10 years, a feat attributable to their dedicated tutoring and well-curated preparation methods. Since we're talking about helping people to get into medicine, their BSc program deserves a special mention. For the past eight years, this program has been supporting BSc Biological Science students at the University of Pretoria. The goal is to ensure that after just six months, the students' grades are high enough to transition into medicine at UP with the mid-year intake. Through this carefully crafted route, Seventh Star has successfully assisted over 100 students in securing a place in medicine, which on average equates to one in three students selected at the University of Pretoria. Continuing to put special focus on their courses that apply most specifically to medical and pre-med students, they recently opened up registrations for their highly successful GEMP course. This program has been painstakingly designed to prepare students for the WITS Additional Placement Test, better known as the WAPT, the Gateway to Studying Medicine at WITS University. This test, as many of you may know, is the final hurdle that prospective medicine students need to clear. And with Seven Stars GEMP program, students can approach this test with renewed confidence. This comprehensive and intensive 10-week course kicks off this week on the 3rd of July 2023. The course offers contact lessons at their Centurion campus, as well as online, live stream lessons for students scattered all around the country. The beauty of the online classes is that every session is recorded. This means that students can revisit the lessons, brush up their understanding, clarify doubts, and get a thorough grasp of the material anytime they wish. Furthermore, Seventh Star understand that many students will only receive their formal WAPS invitation at the end of July. To address this, a highly condensed workshop will be hosted to help students catch up on any content they may have missed. Now, let's talk numbers. 
Over the past years, the vast majority of students who attended this course have passed the WAPT, a testament to Seven Star's commitment to the success of its students. This statistic is a shining endorsement of the quality of education and the level of support provided by Seven Star. Beyond the top-notch instruction and the well-structured courses, one of the key features that sets Seven Star apart is their dedication to comprehensive learning resources. They don't just teach, they provide a wealth of resources to aid learning. They provide brilliantly prepared notes and summaries on their website, allowing students to dive deeper into the subjects and strengthen their understanding. An additional layer of support comes in the form of a responsive Telegram group. This is a space for questions and discussions where doubts can be clarified and concepts can be discussed. This collaborative learning environment allows students to learn from each other as well as from their tutors, ensuring they're fully supported throughout their learning journey. But don't just take my word for it on this sponsored segment. Here's a peek into the impact of Seven Stars GAMP course from some of their past students. Yoni Segal, a past attendee and current medical student, heaped praise on the course for its concise material and riveting lectures, dubbing it the best money he's ever spent. Daniela de Toledo extended her heartfelt thanks to the Seven Star team for her successful admission into medicine and expressed high praise for the presenter and the course notes. And Berno Maré drew attention to the kindness of the tutors and the quality of the study material attributing his successful passage through the WAPT to 7th Star Tuition. If you need more information or to sign up, visit their website at 7star.co.za. Seats fill up fast and spots are limited, and missing this opportunity is something you may regret. For further details, you can also reach out to Johan Mitton on 076-208-5713. In the competitive and congested world of extra lessons and tutoring, one doesn't often come across a service that transcends the conventional realm of education to shape the future of students and help them realize their dreams. If you or someone you know harbors aspirations for a career in medicine, Seventh Star could very well be the guiding light that guides their way to success. Once again, thank you to Seventh Star for their support of this podcast and for the commendable work they're doing in shaping the leaders of tomorrow. So Dr. Brits, we're coming towards the end of the podcast and I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions. So first of all, any highlights for you that stand out? Obviously, you're at the early stage of your career as a private specialist, but what for you has been really gratifying, rewarding, or something that you're particularly proud of so far? Yeah. Um, I know this this podcast is kind of aimed at junior or you know students and junior doctors. I, to be honest, I still consider myself a junior doctor. I mean, I'm very early after um, qualifying um, and for me just becoming a, a specialist was a huge achievement wow. and I <clears throat> lectured the game 3 students where well, I give them a touch once a week on urology or a topic in urology is that in person or online that's or? In, in person as I do that at WITS and um, so that's just once a week and I always ask the students uh, you know what they want to do with their lives how do they sort of see their career panning out and it's always very interesting to hear their responses but I always tell them that medicine uh, as a career is, is very challenging and specializing again is a huge challenge lots of personal sacrifices lots of sacrifices <clears throat> from your family to support you on that path sure. and <clears throat> just uh, sort of becoming a doctor and becoming a specialist I think it's something that you can be hugely proud of um, as an achievement um, just being a doctor, I mean, just making it exactly. into medical school, you're the cream of the cream, yeah. and making it through what is arguably the hardest degree to pass. 
you know, that's, that's uh, something to be part of. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, medicine is tough. Yeah, uh, there's no two ways about it. Um, so there will be times in your career and in your in your training that you think, "Is this really going to be worth it?" At the end of the day, and I have to say, that I think it is. Um, it's very difficult when you're in the thick of it to see that. <clears throat> you kind of just have to go one step at a time. You know, eventually you look back and you can't believe what sort of mountain you've climbed. Um, if I had to think of something that I'm particularly proud of, it would probably be the fact that my wife and I both specialized at the same time while having a kid and my wife was sort sure. of eight months pregnant when oh, wow. we wrote. And that was a hugely sort of... Uh, demanding and challenging time Absolutely, for us sure. and we managed to somehow get through it um, yeah so that would probably be the thing that I'm, I'm most yeah. proud of yeah so uh, I think the encouragement there is also for people not to be afraid of starting a family during range time um, especially as Dr. Ferreira said in our episode 40 she said you know actually range time is a great opportunity to start a family because you know where you're going to be working for the next few years. You're guaranteed a job, right? Uh, I so did hear that. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it, it depends so much on your personal uh, circumstances, how sure. old you are. <clears throat> what how, support you have outside that's of medicine. It. Do you yeah. have uh, family living nearby that can help you? Um, uh, because I know a lot of people that wait until the end of rare time before having kids, and you can argue both ways. Yeah. We didn't, and yeah. I think we are glad that we had a kid during rare time. Um, but it, I, it's not easy. And being married to a doctor, especially being married to a gynecologist, do you guys ever compare notes and kind of say, oh, well, you won't believe the case I had today. Oh, you won't believe the case I had today. Yeah. Is it a resource to you that you're married to someone in medicine? Or do you feel like you, um, you have such similar perspectives on the world that it can kind of be like you miss the rest of life outside of medicine? Yeah. Um, again, you can argue both ways, but uh, definitely for us, it was um, hugely beneficial that we had insights into what we were going through during that uh, rage time, um, and we could support each other. And you know, you go through um, highs and lows, and unfortunately, you, you can't be low at the same time. One of you yeah. needs to be strong, yeah. and one of the one of you can sort of have a bad day or week. Did you schedule your? <laughs> yeah, you have to kind of. So that's, <laughs> no, I'm studying now. No, you're studying now. That's it, and you. It's a lot of. Um, compromise and uh, sacrifice and negotiation but I think it helps us a lot that we had insights yeah. um, if you go through it and you, you are your partner is, is not, sort of not medical there's also pros but sometimes they, people don't have that insight of to you know how truly stressful and demanding it is sure. um, but then the advantage is that uh, they obviously are, are following a different path, so they have different sort of work hours, work demands, and things like that. So yeah, it's pros and cons of each. Okay, so some quick fire questions. Uh, you're on call at the hospital. What is the worst kind of consult that, if that comes across, you're just like, oh man, why am I being consulted for this? What's, what's the consult that you least want to get? Oh, um, our gynecological colleagues tend to give us a hard time. Lots of bladder injuries and ureteric injuries in the middle of the night. And look, my wife's a gynecologist, so uh, <laughs> I, I uh, empathize and I sympathize with them. But um, yeah, they can keep us busy at two o'clock in the morning when they are doing their 12th Caesar or sure. doing an emergency hysterectomy for a PPH and the patient's bleeding out and they're just trying to stop the bleeding. And 
mixing the one year it is gone and there's a big hole in the bladder and you sit there for an hour and a half trying to fix it it's uh it's a challenge but if i had to be honest the, my worst worst emergency to get called for is a priapism and <laughs> i don't know if you remember priapism is like your sort of sustained uh, erection for more than sort of six hours or so um because it's a it's a bloody procedure to try and get that to come down and it doesn't always work and uh, patients of, often are not very happy with the sort of you know end result and it's just a horrible condition to sure. have to deal with yeah sure. do you ever see some sildenafil induced priapism <laughs> not so much sildenafil but lots of other stuff yeah oh, really? um, wow. injections and uh, and the psychiatric meds and other sort of herbal concoctions and things but yeah wow. all sorts of a lot of medication induced priapism sure. those are horrible ones to get so, you know, some urological emergencies can be extremely rewarding I think I've only ever treated one testicular torsion mm. But, you know, you just remember the open book maneuver and the, it, you instant well. relief, the instant <laughs> relief that your patient feels is going to be extremely rewarding because, you know, to this poor patient, you have just worked a miracle. That's it. Um, I mean, even just a basic urinary retention, guy comes in sure. urinary retention, you can't get a cat, sure. you put in a super pubic and uh, that relief that they get from that can also just be huge. So yeah. there are um, times where, but I suppose that's in any, any discipline, right? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, even as a, as a final year student, there was a guy who was referred to the ED at, at Tumbo when we were doing um, our ED stuff. And the referral was, oh no, he's got abdominal distension. The man had a massive neurogenic bladder. Yeah. And we drained, like, I think it was about two liters out yeah. of this poor man's bladder. Yeah. He had had a stroke and he wasn't able to actually communicate yeah, what yeah. was going on. But his family was like, no, he's acting strange <laughs> and he hasn't peed in four days. You know, this That's poor it. man. Yeah, there's a lot of problems, so problems solving and pattern recognition. And you just have to work out what's going on and then make a plan. Yeah. So, so, so we've spoken about some of the rewarding stuff. What is some of the stuff that you live for in urology? Like, oh man, if I could just get this all the time. <laughs> um, sure, I'm not so sure there's something that makes me that excited, but um, <laughs> <laughs> there would probably be a, a, an a issue if you did get too excited. <laughs> um, look, I, I, I enjoy stone work. I think most urologists enjoy uh, dealing with stones and things. It um, comes down to the toy, toys, yeah, a lot again, of right? toys and things, different exactly. lasers and ultrasonic things and yeah, nets, and that's it. So. I think stones are nice and you know, I think you know, I, I used to enjoy like some of the reconstructive stuff but um, I, I, I don't know whether I'm going to do much of it going forward um, yeah, I'm not sure there's anything that sort of jumps to the top of my head yeah okay awesome so as a urologist are there any resources that you can highly recommend to junior doctors who would be interested in urology to kind of learn more or to improve their skills get the inside track on the state of the arts in urology yeah so um I, I follow or I sort of subscribe to a thing called Grand, Grand Rounds in Urology, with a, which is an American-based, um, it's, it's kind of like a, a newsletter almost, and they send out uh, videos with talks from sort of leading experts. It's all American-based, but um, they have a lot of really, really good stuff. But that really is, is aimed at, at urologists. Okay, um, so you need to, a bit of specialist knowledge. Yeah. Or you can always just Google the terms as, as they come up in the yeah. interview, right? In terms of, as, as a... As a um, as a sort of junior doctor or, or someone that wants to get into urology, there's 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 a couple sort of textbooks that are like Bibles, but really again that's kind of at you know, it's probably too advanced. I don't know if uh, urology really 
I don't know how you sort of scratch the surface of urology. So if I was um, to compare it to orthopedics, where orthopedics has something like orthobullets, which is like mm. the go-to resource for everybody, even the registrars, you know, they'll read the chapters in athletes yeah. and then they'll go to orthobullets just to kind of get the cliff notes. Yes. Is there anything like that in urology? Um, there's a book called Weeders, which, which is relatively good. Um, but again, that you, you kind of, I think you, you order it and it comes from the States. Um, and then Campbell's is our like Bible. There, there are some sort of summarized notes of Campbell's, but again, that's kind of what, what you're using to study for finals and things sure. like that. So it's probably a bit too advanced, yeah. yeah. That's interesting because urology is obviously such a, a niche yeah, subspec, and uh, without denigrating it in any sense, there's a smaller body of knowledge than, say, general surgery. Mm. Uh, would it make sense that somebody needs to put out a good, concise summary of everything? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Blitz, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. If I could ask you any word of encouragement, motivation, or inspiration to junior doctors. As I mentioned, I'm sort of recently qualified. And if, if you had to ask me a year ago, you know, is it all worth it? I think it would be a different answer. The path that we've chosen is, is very challenging. But my word of encouragement would be that uh, if you just uh, go one step at a time and keep Ticking off the, the ticking the boxes that you need to 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 do to achieve your your goals, um, you will eventually get there. And it, it might seem overwhelming and daunting, and uh, frankly, quite scary at times. Um, ultimately, I think it's worth it. And we are in a privileged position where um, we get to do really interesting work. I think a lot of my colleagues or, or peers, you know, um, become accountants or lawyers or things like that. I think their lifestyle is maybe a little bit better, but I think their work probably isn't quite as... You don't get that job... Yeah, yeah, rewarding. You don't don't get that job satisfaction we get. And I think one of the pros of of being in private is that you also get sort of financially awarded for your expertise. So ultimately, there is a sort of um, light at the end of the tunnel. Um, And I would recommend urology to to anybody that has a surgical interest you have to well you don't have to because there is sort of office urology but it is a surgical discipline so you need to be sort of comfortable with uh, with operating but if you if you enjoy operating and dealing with sweet old men that can't pee rather than the junk um, yeah. uh, trauma guy at two in the morning then yeah urology is, is definitely an option and you mentioned it's like microsurgery do you wear loops and look through microscopes so, and- so we aim um, there is that, but it's not. We don't. We don't not train always. in that, and we don't do a lot of that. So sure. that's more for reconstructive and wow. fertility stuff. But no, most of our stuff's endoscopic, laparoscopic, and uh, yeah, endoscopic and laparoscopic are sort of two places where we where we we operate. So the encouragement to all the male patients is, you know, it's small surgery, but it's not that small. Well, I said a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the time uh, when you say that you're going in with a camera, people are way happier, right? It's like uh, it kind of reassures people a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Bliss, it's been awesome nice to have you on Thanks the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for making yourself available, and to all of the students who encounter you, I hope that they thank you for your time on the podcast, and I hope that they recognize you and give you the respect that's due to all of the consultants who appear and, on the um, podcast. Please, anyone who is interested in in, in urology or in uh, Spending some time in urology is welcome to, to contact me. Um, you just sort of Google my name, you'll see a contact address or website, and uh, send me an email uh, or phone, and uh, I'm happy to set up or point you in the right direction in terms of uh, an elective or something like that. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Bits. Thanks very much, Sean.
Well, that's it for this week's episode, and I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. I'd like to take a moment to direct you briefly to our Linktree URL, which you can find in the show notes for this episode on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, as well as in the bio of our Instagram page at DrCoffeeZA. There you'll find links to our sponsors on this episode, IndemniMed by Money and Medicine, V Professional Services and 7th Star Tuition, as well as a Google form you can complete if you're interested in working with the Dr. Coffee podcast. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this episode, send us an email to drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's D-R-Coffee-Z-A with no punctuation marks. Thank you for your support and we'll see you in episode 43.